So John 20 speaks of the time of the resurrection. We spoke on Friday night about the death of Christ. We took some time briefly to go through the scriptures in John's gospel. And we saw that Jesus, right from the beginning of the gospel, John 1 in the prologue in those first 18 verses of the book, every major theme of John's gospel is contained in seed form in that first 18 verses. And there at the beginning it says that Jesus was life. And that idea of life coming from Jesus and him being life is something that runs through John's Gospels. And one of the ways that John speaks about that, particularly in connection with the Holy Spirit, is that he speaks of living water. You'll be familiar with um, John chapter 4, the woman, Samaritan woman at the well. She's rejected by her own people. She's out gathering water in the heat of the day. The Samaritans as a people have been rejected by the Jewish people. And Jesus takes this rejected, sinful, hurting woman. And he says to her, I have living water. If you drink from this water, you will never thirst again. And then in chapter 7, Jesus stands up. The great day of the feast at the end, and he stands up there, and he shouts out. It's funny, in the Gospels, Jesus talks a lot, but we don't hear that he shouts much. But on that day, to the crowds, there at the festival, he shouted. And he said, come to me if you thirst, and I will give you living water. He is promising eternal life. So that those who thirst will never thirst again. And then as we saw on Friday night, John 19, there on the cross, what does Jesus say? I thirst. I am thirsty. The one who promised living water that would mean that we never thirst again, he said, I thirst. Am thirsty. Guys, that is one of the most astonishing statements in all of the Gospels. Because what it communicated on a theological level is that the one who offered life didn't have life. Because there, for the last three hours on the cross, under the darkness that supernaturally came upon the land, Jesus took upon himself the wrath of the Father, the righteous anger of God against all sin and unrighteousness. And he did so as one who knew no sin, one who had never sinned, the only one who had never sinned. And there, as he was on the cross, he thirsted, spiritually speaking, because he was somehow separated from the Father. 
somehow forsaken. Somehow under the wrath of the Father. In his deity, oh no. He was still God incarnate, glorious, magnificent, omniscient. But in his humanity, he suffered under the wrath of God for our sins. And as shocking as that is, as somber, as serious, as heartbreaking, as earth-shattering as that realization is. And by the way, I don't fully understand it. I don't think any of us ever will. How does the one who has always existed, who created time itself, who is the creator of the universe, the sustainer of the universe... How does he somehow become forsaken under sin, set aside, without life, spiritually dead, separated from the Father? I have no idea. All I know is that Scripture tells us that this happened that we might see that he took upon himself the punishment for sin. But, if that was the end of the story, it would have meant nothing. As important as Good Friday is, without Easter Sunday, it would mean nothing. There was a man who did miraculous things. Is that unique? No. The Bible has many men doing miraculous things. At various times in biblical history, as they are empowered to do so by the Spirit of God. He claimed many things. But then lots of other people have claimed many things. What distinguishes Jesus is that he wasn't just man. In fact, right from the beginning of John's gospel, John begins his gospel, and right from the off he says, in the beginning, before time even began, right there, connection to Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, there in the beginning was the word. And he will tell us that this word is a description of Jesus because throughout the Old Testament there was the word of God that at many points in Old Testament writings seems to be the same as God and at other times distinct from God. And John doesn't seek initially to explain that, he just jumps on it. And he says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God, distinct, and the word was God. He goes on to say that everything that was created in the beginning was created by the Word. That there in Christ, the Word of God, we have one who is distinct from the Father and yet is as much God as the Father is God. 
He is the one who was there in creation. He was Yahweh, Lord and God. And then, and this is more of a Christmas sermon at this point briefly, but in John 1.14, and the word became flesh. He always was, but there was a point in history where he became something that he had not been previously. Now, that is a lot harder to get your heads around than you might initially think. That he who always existed, that he who created everything, that he who created time itself, that he who is God, he somehow at a point in time which he himself created became something that he wasn't before he created time and allowed time to get to that point. He became man. And the number one reason that Jesus, the Word of God, distinct from the Father, yet fully God, the one main reason that he became a man is this. God cannot die. God is life. God is the sustainer of life. God is the one who gives life. If we sit here today with each breath that we take, we only get that next breath because God gives it to us as a gift. And out there in the world, there are billions of people who live in the midst of the creation that God made And they, with breath that he gives them, and with minds that he gave them, they deny his existence. And yet, in his mercy, he gives them another breath, and another breath, and another breath. The one who gives life is life. He cannot die. And so the word became flesh. At the point in history of the incarnation, what occurred in the womb of a simple Jewish girl called Mary is that God incarnate took on human nature. That though in his deity, in his, in his divine nature, He was unable to die. He could not be separated from the Father. He was omniscient, all-knowing, omnipotent, all-powerful, and omnipresent, able to be everywhere. He took on a human nature that limited him to a human brain that was developing and growing from the womb. That limited him to being in a place, single place at a single time that limited his power and that allowed him to die. And all of that was accomplished so that he on the cross could say, I am thirsty. And he died. He died 
under the wrath of God, under the punishment of God, separated from the Father in his humanity for those last three hours as all of the sin was placed upon him. All the punishment for sin was placed upon him. And yet, after all I've said, that means nothing if he stays in the grave. Let's look at the text. Michael got us to verse 18. I'm going to pick up in verse 19. So while it was evening on that day, the first day of the week, and while the doors were shut where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood in their midst and he said to them, Peace be with you. The Jews have accomplished what they were trying to do, which is to kill the troublemaker. And now, of course, without their leader, the rest of the troublemakers are going to be easy. And so they're hiding. They're in a house and the doors are locked. And Jesus now, in a resurrected and glorified body, not as limited as he was before, seemingly, he says, peace be with you. You ever show up in a room unannounced and no one knows you're there, peace be with with you is a good thing to say. But I suspect that it's more than that. I suspect that there is theological weight too. But we'll press on. When he said this, he showed both his hands and his side. Disciples then rejoiced when they saw the Lord. They rejoiced when they saw his wounds. Isn't that astonishing? He conquers death. And yet, there are still going to be in his glorified body forever the wounds of crucifixion. I mean, I find it hard enough to get my head around the fact that the one who created time at a point in time became a man, let alone the fact that the one who became a man will then for eternity future remain a man. But that that eternal future in an eternal glorified human body will happen with the permanent marks of the accomplishments of the cross is utterly stunning. And so he shows them his wounds. They know who he is. It's bizarre that there needs to be that to give that assurance that he was only with them a few days ago. One of the, one of the glorious truths, and one we focus on sort of most Easter Sundays as we talk about resurrection every year. One of the truths I think last year we really focused on was that Christ in his resurrection is the first fruits of resurrection and the guarantee and the assurance that we will one day be resurrected. That isn't symbolic. That isn't something that can be spiritualized away. One day, we, who have trusted in him, who have turned from our sins and trusted in the sacrifice of Christ, one day, we will be resurrected too, and we will have glorified bodies. And somehow, 
our bodies will be uniquely ours. I'll have my DNA, not your DNA, but there'll be no corruption of it. No disease, no aging. I imagine quite a few of us, if we get the chance to meet in eternity, will have to say, no, no, I'm so-and-so. I never knew you till you were 60. This is amazing. You look great. <laughs> so I don't know quite the difference, but the last time they saw him, he was on a cross with holes in his body, wearing a crown of thorns with blood running down his forehead. He had not only been whipped, but he had been scourged, which is a whipping where on the cords of the whip, bits of glass and bone and metal are attached so that when the person is struck, that the flesh, the skin, the muscle is ripped off their back. And there on the cross, which he was unable to carry as crucified people normally would because of the wounds of that scourging, that as he was on the cross, it is ultimately a death of drowning without water, a death of suffocation. That as he sinks down on that cross, he cannot breathe. And a block is placed at the bottom of the cross that he might push himself up and get a breath and then lower back down and then raise himself up again with that monumental effort to get another breath until there is no strength left to breathe at all. And every time he pushes up, there is just open wounds all over his back and the pain would be excruciating. That's gone. But the wounds of the cross are still there to identify him. So I imagine he looked a little different. And they rejoiced when they saw the Lord. That's important. The Hebrew name of God that is so important throughout the Old Testament is Yahweh. I am that I am. I am Yahweh. He declares himself to Moses in the burning bush. And the name of God is synonymous throughout the Old Testament with the glory of God and the attribute or characters of God. So John is able to say, we saw his glory full of grace and truth. He's not talking about Jesus shining on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's talking about the fullest expression of loving kindness and mercy and love and grace and faithfulness which was witnessed by God dying for men on a cross. One without sin taking the punishment for sin that other sinners who hate him and don't want him might be able to live with him. That's the character of God there. 
And when you take that name Yahweh, the Jews were so prickly about using the name. We can't say the name. Maybe we'll blaspheme or say something wrong. So they never said it out loud. And so when it came to translating the Old Testament into Greek, centuries before the time of Christ, when they started to do that process, they didn't want to translate the name Yahweh because, you know, it's the name of God. So they just put Lord. 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 And so when you see the word Lord, you have to ask yourself in the New Testament, is it saying that he's Lord, like Lord and Master, or is it saying that he is Yahweh? Here, it doesn't say they saw Lord, a Lord. They said he saw the Lord. And so that's, that's, that's a maybe. We're going to have to go on and see what John wants us to think. Jesus said to them again, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I also send you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they have been retained. We'll do this quickly. I'm not teaching this in depth today. We're uh, trying to do a briefer message today. But Jesus is essentially saying, the role that I have played in representing the Father to you on this earth, now that I have died and been resurrected, you get to have that same mission. You believers, you Christians, you get to have the same mission. I'm sending you like I was sent. You get to go and represent God. You get to go and take love and hope to the world. You get to go tell people to repent of their sins. You get to take the good news of the kingdom to the world. That's now your job. I'm sending you. And then he says, well, after he said he breathed on them. You know how the Last Supper, Jesus gives them bread and says, this is my body. Gives them the cup, says, this is my blood. Well, he hasn't died yet. <laughs> so, so what's he saying here? Well, he's, he's giving a symbol of something in advance that then might be understood once that's happened. Same thing here. He breathes on them and says, receive the Holy Spirit. Have they received the Holy Spirit? No, that's Acts 2, that's Pentecost. But he's, he's giving them that imagery because when he sends them, they are sent in the power of the Holy Spirit, as are we. And then the last of those verses, which is the one that people stumble on a lot, if you forgive the sins of any, their sins have been forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they've been retained. That sounds strange at first, doesn't it? Are you saying that we as Christians get to say to people, nope, your sins aren't forgiven. Oh, yep, your sins are forgiven. And that God's got our back. Yeah, kind of. This is how it works. Somebody comes and they say, I'm interested in God. He says, that's great. I love that you're interested in God. Here is the good news. Christ died in, 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 in the place of sinners. He took the punishment that was ours. And it is, it is ours if we place our trust in him and we turn from our sin and we turn from our life and we say, Jesus, 
I trust in you. The way I've lived was wrong. I am now turning to you, trusting in your sacrifice that I might live for you. And I'm not looking to be right with God by the way I live or what I do or what I've done or my family background or being raised in a church. I recognize I'm a sinner and I'm turning from that sin and I'm asking you for mercy on the basis of what you did on the cross. That's good news. And then the person to whom we're talking says, no, I don't want to do that. I like my sin. I just don't want to be punished for it at the end. And you say, well, I'm sorry, your sins are still with you. You retain your sins. But if somebody else says, I'm so sick of my sin. I've made a mess of my life. In my own strength, I keep failing. I know I'm not good enough. How could a holy God look upon me? How could God who created the universe have mercy on me with all that I have done? Will God have mercy on someone like me? And to that one we say, yes, yes, exactly like you, repentant sinners that have come to the end of themselves and are going to trust in Christ and Christ alone. Yes, you're the ones. You're the ones for whom this good news applies. Your sins are forgiven as you trust in him. See, we get to do that. Kind of cool, huh? And then, verse 24, the famous story of the one who has come to be known as Doubting Thomas. I I really think he needs a better PR guy. He, He... 2,000 years later, and we still call him Doubting Thomas. He's, he's, a, he's a hero, this guy. I love him. Let me tell you why. One of the 12, Thomas, called Didymus, he was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails, and I put my finger into the place of the nails and I put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now listen, you have to understand this guy is not being unreasonable. I want to believe that so much, but you do realize what you sound like at this point. I really want to believe this, but I need to see. I need to see. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside. Eight days. I think a lot of people missed that in the text. Poor Thomas, he thinks he's missed the boat. Oh, they got to get the, the see the resurrection, but I didn't. Felt like he missed out. Now again inside, Thomas with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut. And he stood in their midst and said, peace be with you. I love the repetition there from earlier. Thomas is going to get the same thing. And then he said to Thomas, (laughs) I love this. Thomas thinks he's missed out. Everybody's in the room. Jesus is there. They see his wounds. And they get this appearance of him. And Thomas thinks he's missed out. And eight days later, he comes back and he gets a one-man show. It's It's like having tickets to go and see your favorite band at a concert. 
And, and then, you know, traffic's bad and you don't get there. You know, oh, I've missed out. And then whoever it is that you long to see comes and does a one-off gig for you in your living room. Not quite the same. Far more glorious. Thomas is spoken to directly. He said to Thomas, bring your finger here and see my hands. Bring your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. I love here that Jesus desires him to believe. There's no berating. I feel for thousands of years the church has berated this poor guy. There's no berating. There's just Jesus saying, I want you to believe. I don't think Jesus presents any hurdles to us believing. I really don't. He wants us to believe. But if we won't turn from our sin to him, then that's that's the hurdle. That's the problem. But he's not there resisting us. He's not there stopping us. He wants us to believe. And she says to Thomas, I don't want you to be unbelieving. I want you to believe. And I want you to see what Thomas's belief, what his faith, what his trust looks like. He said to him, my Lord and my God. Right from the beginning, there was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. The prologue, the book of John, chapter 1, verse 1, Jesus is God. Chapter 1, verse 18 says that no one has ever seen God, but the unique one, the unique God, he has made him known. No one has ever seen God the Father, but this one who is God, Jesus, he has made him known. He has revealed Yahweh. He has shown us his glory. He has shown us his character. He has shown us who the Father is. That's the end of the prologue, chapter 1, verse 18. In other words, the entire prologue is sandwiched by the deity of Christ. Unless Jesus comes relatively soon, we are all going to die. Because we're human. And that is something that humans do. We die. But the resurrection of Jesus Christ tells us something else that is unique to him. On the Friday he died because he was man. On the Sunday he was resurrected because he was God. And Thomas recognizes this. He knew Jesus was a man because he spent all of his time with him for the last three years. He knew he was a man because he saw him crucified and had to flee. 
And he knew he was the Messiah. Because they all believed that. But when Jesus had said to them, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, but on the third day I'm going to rise again, Peter rebuked him. The disciples couldn't understand it. Now they understood it. Jesus has shown himself to not only be man, but to be God. And in rising from the dead, it declares his deity to his disciples, to us, to the world. Muhammad is dead. Confucius is dead. Joseph Smith is dead. Mera Baker Eddy is dead. Pick your favorite religion. Pick your favorite cult leader. Dead, 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 dead. The uniqueness of Christianity is seen in the deity of Jesus Christ. That's why the church was decimated in the 1800s and the 1900s as theological liberalism came in with all of it saying, well, we can't believe this stuff in the Bible. And what was the doctrine they were shooting for from the beginning? They want to get rid of the deity of Christ. They want to make him a man just like the rest of us. Why? Because a man has no authority. He has no authority to tell you how to live or what to do. And they are not Christians who deny his deity. Not the liberal theologians, not the Mormons, not the Jehovah's Witnesses, none of the cults, that those who deny the deity of Christ are not Christians. They take their side with the kings of Psalm 2 who don't want to be bound by his fetters and chains and don't want to be told what to do. And the council of Psalm 2 is the same council for today, which is kiss the son, lest he be angry and find your refuge in him. Because he is the one who has authority over sin and death. As he rises from the dead, he shows himself to have conquered death. And you don't get to conquer death unless you conquer the thing that leads to death, which is sin. Sin leads to death. Sin leads to death. All throughout scripture, sin leads to death. If you eat the fruit from that tree, you'll surely die. Sin leads to death. And Jesus conquered death because he conquered sin. And he committed no sin, he knew no sin, he did no sin, and yet the full weight of God's wrath against sin was upon him for those three hours. And as he is raised from the dead, he claims his victory over sin and over death, so that those of us who have turned from our sin and placed our trust in him, that we are associated with him in his death, And that who we are is now gone. And we are associated with him in his resurrection. And we get new life now. Where sin is no longer our master. We don't longer have to do what we're told to do by our desires. But rather we can live lives for the glory of God. Living for him rather than against him. All because the same God 
who became man and died and rose again, beckons to us and says, come, that I might dwell in you and you might have a part in my death and in my life. And that's my prayer this day. That we who are saved would be ambassadors for Christ and take this gospel, this good news, to those we love, to the world around us. And that if any of us have not yet experienced that new life, that we would heed the call and that we would come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the death, burial and resurrection of our Lord, God incarnate, Jesus Christ. He who created us, he who gives us breath, he thirsted and breathed his last that we might never thirst and live forever with him. I pray that anyone who is here or hears this later, who has not tasted of that living water, has not been given the gift of eternal life, they would turn from their lives as they are and come to you seeking mercy because the punishment for their sins was taken by him if only we would believe and trust in him alone. Thank you for the cross and thank you for the resurrection. Amen. Thank you.